Welcome to the Beyond Conflict podcast, where we talk about mental resilience in times of crisis. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for people in conflict zones. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. In this episode of the Beyond Conflict podcast, my guest is Ed Newell, Chair of the Board of Trustees of Beyond Conflict. Ed is also an author, speaker and Anglican priest. He joins me today to talk about how we all need human connection in times of crisis and how one-to-one talking therapy, as well as communal gatherings, can help us heal trauma. So, Ed Newell, thank you for coming onto the Beyond Conflict podcast. Uh, You are the chair of the trustees of Beyond Conflict. Um, What drew you to joining the Beyond Conflict team? Well, um, the whole concept of Beyond Conflict came out of a conversation that um, that Edna Fernandez had uh, on the steps of Windsor Castle, St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle, and I was present at that conversation. And it was with a young Yazidi woman, and Edna asked her what we could do to support her and uh, fellow Yazidis, and the answer was very much around the, uh, the area of mental health support. And that's something that resonated with me uh, very personally um, from my own experiences, but also seeing someone uh, in a very distressed state, um, tra- deeply traumatized state. It it was just so powerful. and. Uh, and when Edna said that she wanted to do something practical, I was only too keen to work alongside her with that. What I'm struck about with um, Edna's story, which we heard uh, on our previous podcast, um, and what you've just uh, said, is that you know we generally think about um, trauma and conflict, and it's out there um, it's happening to somebody else. It's out there on the news, um, and. What? But when we come across a single personal story, someone speaking, uh, on, you know, for themselves, but also for their community, um, that can move us in a in a different way because it's a one to one connection, um, and also that it's individuals like Edna Fernandez and and like yourself, um, where we think, oh, you know, this is all so impossible to solve the world's problems, um, but actually you were inspired as, as Edna Fernandez was to to take action. Yeah, and I suppose in many ways I was um, practicing what I was preaching. Um, a number of years ago, I co-authored a book called What Can One Person Do? And it was very much um, about how individuals could contribute to working towards the Millennium Development Goals. And, and I suppose the experience of writing that book and thinking very carefully about uh, how one can contribute to to seemingly intractable issues um, is something that's been driving me for a number of years now. And uh, I do feel that unless one actually takes steps to be to 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 put oneself um, well, to, to contribute to, to, to these causes, I don't know that they are never going to, to, to have a chance of succeeding. So let's give them a chance to succeed by, by getting, getting behind them. 
That's a, it's a wonderful title because it really um, focuses the mind. What can one person do? And it empowers us. And I'd like to come back to the book uh, a little bit later um, because what I'd like to explore with you is, is your involvement uh, with um, Beyond Conflict and also your personal experience of um, kind of helping people develop mental resi resilience during times of conflict in your in your professional role as well. Um, so, you know, why do you feel that it's it's important to help people develop mental resilience during times of crisis? I think that just simply being able to live a good life um, under pressure is something that I think is 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 something that everyone should be able to to do. I think that we we will inevitably in our lives face traumatic situations. It may not be quite as dramatic as uh, as the, some of the conflicts that we are seeing around the world and the impact on it. But everyone is going to have some sort of um, trauma to deal with in their lives, and having the ability to uh, to navigate those difficulties and to have uh, the resilience, mental resilience to, to cope with them, I think is just fundamentally important. I think that's very true because also I think in our society, there is a sense that we have to put on a brave front. You know, we're okay. Um, no, no, it's, it's, it's fine. You know, it's, it's a bit like uh, in Monty Python and that, you know, I, put this lightly in, in Monty Python and the, and the Holy Grail, the, the knight who has his legs chopped off and his arms chopped off. Um, and, you know, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm absolutely fine. It's just a scratch, no problem. Um, and, you know, that's a, a lighthearted view of it. But actually, there is a deeper thing around, um, you know, should we put on a brave face? Um, and should we, uh, yeah, and, and why do we do that? Um, and how can we actually heal our wounds in a healthy way? Um, rather than pretending that they're not there? Well, I think the answer is that they are there um, and they can. we can suppress a lot of trauma into our subconscious and then things can trigger it later in life. Not for everyone. Some, some people are fine. They don't have those triggers, but other people do. And when those triggers happen, they can um, throw out all sorts of difficult stuff that one has to deal with, which, which has not been properly processed in the past. There's loads of research around this, and there's lots of evidence that particularly what happens in people's childhood uh, can affect their uh, mental state later on in life. Clearly, things are going on when our brains are being wired, and if, if there's some difficult stuff going on, that's likely to to wire our brains in a way that we may have to deal with 20, 30, 40 years later, even longer. Um, so it's there. And I think one of the positives that's really come out of the last few years, certainly in this, in our society, has been a much more open uh, approach to mental health issues. People are, are less likely to, to go for the stiff upper lip approach and more uh, likely to talk about it. And I think that's really really important because i think one of the great therapeutic ways of dealing with mental health issues is to talk talking therapies is a really important um, therapeutic technique so i'm all in favor of people being open and as open as they feel they uh, they want to be and can be and to be in in a safe environment to do that and in your own personal and um, family history, you've um, your family have experienced trauma. Um, would you would you be willing to talk, to tell us something about that? Sure. I and mean, one thing that really struck me when um, I started 
working with Beyond Conflict and a conversation that I had with, with Martin Parsons, whose expertise is on um, long-term impact of, uh, of childhood experience in, in, in conflict, was that it can take three generations for um, war trauma to work its way th through and out of people. And that made me think very seriously about my own family situation. So one of my grandfathers served in the First World War. And I remember as a child, um, he, he lived with us in his old age. And I remember as a child hearing him have nightmares. Um, and these nightmares were reliving experiences that he had uh, as a result of the First World War. He was also a very anxious person, and I'm sure that was all tied up with it. Then uh, his daughter, my mother, um, was uh, an evacuee during the Second World War, separated from her family. Um, and again, my mother was an anxious person. And again, I see all that tied, tied in. <laughs> and you know, there can't be more close relationship than a, than a mother and, uh, uh, and child. So uh, that made me think. And my father, um, as a young man, uh, was in a house that was bombed uh, during the, uh, the Blitz. Um, he obviously survived. Um, Neighbours didn't. And so he and, and his house was destroyed. And he also, through his life, had all sorts of issues to deal with, um, not necessarily bad issues, but from time to time, you know, he was, he was clearly anxious about certain things. And I can see now that um, in my own uh, childhood and growing up and, and, and adult life, these things have clearly uh, affected me and I have to work through them. And I also have to recognize that I've got children uh, and I'm carrying things, no doubt, through the generations that I pass on to them. So that's, that's been a big driver in, in my attitude to, to the work of Beyond Conflict from quite a personal experience. And so Beyond Conflict, um, the work that, uh, uh, that the charity does is to help people who have um, had the um, horrible experience, first-hand experience of conflict, um, of war or terrorism or, or other uh, crises. Um, and actually, you know, we're, in your story that you're telling, you know, we look back at your, your grandfather and your mother and the war experiences they had. Um, and what Beyond Conflict is trying to do is step in at the point, um, and in a way, for your um, ancestors to, to go back in time and to help them at the point when they experience the trauma to help them cope and heal. And uh, if one could change, you know, the past, then one would hope that there would be a better outcome for um, what the, what they then had to live with uh, for the rest of their lives. But beyond conflict, you know, we can't go back in time, but it's looking at now and the future. Yeah. And just picking up on the family story, something um, that I've reflected on a lot as an adult is um, sadly my mother died when I was uh, 14 and it was pretty horrible to be quite blunt about it. And um, what I remember looking back is how in my school environment, it was 
just not mentioned. Now today, there would be um, counselling going on and uh, referrals and look after this kid. Uh, I remember very much going back to school and knowing that I got some mock exams coming up the following week and I didn't want to fail them. Um, I, I thought I've got to really do as well as I can here. Uh, otherwise, people will start pointing the finger and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I didn't have the sort of support network or intervention at that stage, which I now know uh, is so important. And, um, and again, I, <laughs> it's partly, you know, wanting for others what you didn't have uh, yourself and, uh, uh, and making sure you, you, you do that. And I'm sure that's been a big driver right through my, my life, not only um, with Beyond Conflict, but in my, in my work as a priest. I think it's been uh, quite fundamental about what happens to young people when they face traumatic experiences and how is that dealt with at a pastoral psychological uh, level. So, you know, that childhood, uh, that must have been quite a burden to bear to hold it all in, um, in this very difficult time of grief and loss when your when your mother died, and then having to um, you kind of do well. Um, other, and there's a sense of shame around that. Um, and um, in a way, what you're saying seems to me that you're that um, you have you're, you've been called uh, to help others um, to to have what you didn't have. Um, could you say something about uh, your your professional career um, uh, as as a priest and 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 uh, generally helping others? Yeah, I mean, my when I was uh, was in my early twenties, I was going to be an academic. That was my what I felt was my calling and I was good at it and I got research fellowships at Oxford University and I had a this is sounds very pretentious but it's it's perfectly true I was actually at a seminar in All Souls College in Oxford and we were discussing 18th century grain prices uh, and the argument there was an argument around it which got quite heated and I remember distinctly thinking I couldn't really care less about 18th century grain prices um, but I do care about people and that made me sudden, suddenly stop and think well why am I pursuing this particular uh, route and I was very involved in my local church and um, and actually that's what's making me tick as a human being it's the interactions I'm having with people through the church um, and and so, so I decided to go forward for ordination. I'd assumed that I was leaving the sort of academic -y world behind me, and that I was going to be uh, a parish priest and a and a vicar, and that's what I assumed was going to happen. That didn't quite materialise. So I started out working in a parish. When I came to the end of that, I was then asked to be the chaplain to the Bishop of Oxford, Lord Harry's, very involved in public life. Um, and working with him, that suddenly exposed me to all sorts of worlds, but also he wanted an academic uh, researcher to work alongside him to, to, for his, his work. Um, and then out of the blue, I had a letter asking if I was interested in going to St. Paul's Cathedral to um, strengthen their links, links with the city. They wanted a priest who understood the world of economics. That was my background. They also wanted someone to do something with an educational focus. That was my background. 
uh, and I really couldn't resist the opportunity. So that took me off a completely different direction. Pastoral work, yes, is still was still there, but it was not my day-to-day ministry. It was very much uh, other stuff. But the St. Paul's experience also exposed me to trauma at, at a level that you know, it's, it's unbelievable to <laughs> some of the things I got involved in at St. Paul's. Uh, and I'm sure that's also been a big factor in thinking about the work for for your Beyond Conflict. So um, you were at St. Paul's um, at the point when 9-11 happened. Um, could you tell us something about that experience? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd only been at St. Paul's a few months and um, 9-11 happened. It was on a Tuesday. On the, the next morning, we had the meeting of the dean and chapter. That's the, the group that runs the cathedral, the senior senior clergy. We had an emergency meeting to discuss what we should be doing in response to 9-11. And in the course of that meeting, we kept being interrupted by uh, phone calls. So we had a phone call from the American embassy asking whether we could do something. We had very strong links with it, with the American embassy. Uh, we then had uh, a phone call from Buckingham Palace um, the Queen and other senior royals wanted understood something was going to be happening, wanted to be involved. Similarly, we had the, a phone call from uh, 10 Downing Street. The Prime Minister heard there's something going on. Within uh, a few hours, uh, a major national event was being planned and, and delivered on, on the Friday of that week. So from Tuesday to Friday, we were just immersed in 9-11. And obviously that time... No one really knew what was going on, just realised something horrendous had happened. Um, there was, London became, you know, the, the, the air, air over London was quiet, planes were being diverted. Uh, it was very, very eerie being at St Paul's uh, in the city uh, with this sort of sense of, well, it's, the atmosphere was remarkable because everyone was so uh, on edge and London was very, very different. And that Friday, that service, um, hugely moving, hugely moving. And I, I mean, this, uh, this sounds, again, I want to avoid anything saying, saying pretentious, but I, I remember standing at the back of the cathedral at the end of the service, the west doors opening, and you could see a sea of faces out there and silence. And the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, was standing next to me and just said, what are we going to do if people are prepared to blow themselves up? Um, how do we respond? Now, he wasn't asking my opinion. I think he was just thinking out loud. And when one thinks about what happened subsequently, when one thinks about uh, his particular involvement in, in things, I mean, it really was a profound moment. But also because St Paul's had got involved in that, 9-11 event that also meant we ended up having a whole string of services linked to the tragedies and the the, the conflicts that, that came out of 9-11 uh, and that immersed us not only uh, in in these events but also dealing at a pastoral level with the people who were caught up in it all uh, and that was where I really saw trauma um, at its rawest state but also not only trauma but also the fact that the people involved were under the public gaze a lot of trauma takes place very quietly these people were suddenly for no reason whatsoever apart from 
strange circumstances suddenly plunged into the public arena as well as deep personal grief and that was a, that's a really really toxic combination and what you've described um just over the our, our short conversation um today has been um you know that the personal trauma um and then how it can be connected um, in some situations to the, a wider national and international trauma, um, such as 9-11. And um, in a way for, for some, in almost that like we need um, different arenas and different spaces to talk about pain and grief, um, fury, vengeance, all those things, whether it's one-to-one -one in talking therapy or um, in, in the pastoral situation with, um, with your priest. Um, and then at the same time, opening it out towards community and a national and international stage. Very much so. And I think um, the multiple approaches are really important, and, but also understanding what each uh, individual needs um, is is important. Some people, some for some people, I guess the trauma of being plunged into the public arena is some ways greater than the. the I say greater, perhaps, but um, is is as significant as the as the trauma of of, of a loss, um, because if you're a deeply introverted person, quiet person, suddenly being the focus of attention can be uh, deeply stressful. So one has to work one's, one's way through it and, and try to understand uh, where people are coming from. I also remember one of the things that struck me at the St. Paul's service, and this is it's intriguing how these things play out. Um, one of the things we did was at the end of the service, drop rose petals from the whispering gallery uh, and they came down. They're exactly the same number of petals as the people that have been uh, killed and um, actually, I think that was at a that was at a second service, not at the first one. I think I'm right in thinking it might have been the anniversary service. But anyway, what triggered what it triggered for me was the image of a body falling out of the twin towers. That's that's how it spoke to me, and I thought, "Ooh, have we got this wrong?" Um, but in fact, the people that were there wanted to collect these petals when they fell down and take them with them. And that was, it actually spoke to them very positively. So individuals' responses to these things can be very different. And, and I think trying to understand that and building that into the mix is, is really, really important. Mm, wow. Um, I'd like to pick up on this um, uh, point that you made about um, being thrust in the public eye. Um, are, are you um, referring to um, an individual who suddenly finds themselves with the media at their doorstep um, asking, how do you feel, uh, some sort of horrible questions, like how do you feel after your, you know, d beloved um, died? Is, is that what you mean? It's that sort of experience. Um, I've been thinking of another example of trauma that I came across and that was someone very close to me uh, was killed in the King's Cross fire um, a number of years ago if we remember that horrendous uh, thing and, and this was someone who was at the time was living in Wales and suddenly his family would contact and say that uh, his body had been found in King's Cross station 
And that obviously became a news item. And I remember very well that um, spending time with the family around uh, that period. Um, and in fact, they sent, and the new, local newspaper in Oxford sent out a cub reporter to go and do this, follow this story. And the cub reporter turned up on the doorstep and it ended up that the family ended up having to sort of <laughs> counsel the reporter. The reporter was suddenly struck by the, the whole trauma of the situation. Um, and it was a, you know, it was, it was a very, very messy thing. The family ha were dealing with something really horrible, um, but also then they had the intrusion of the press and then the press actually couldn't cope with it. And uh, that would be made it, I mean, looking back at it, the sort of black humor of that situation of things twisting around. But it does strike, you know, suddenly, you, you know, one day life could be quite normal. The next day you can have uh, uh, the press knocking on your door and uh, people are asking for, for interviews uh, and uh, you can get thrown into the limelight. Now, the family concerned were actually very... Um, took the opportunity of saying some very public things out, out of that. And they were in a good position to do that. Um, and they had the ability to do that. Not everyone, not everyone does. And for some people, I think it could be uh, very, very traumatic suddenly being asked opinions on, on things and drawn into something that you don't really want to be drawn into. Yes, that actually makes me think about what's been happening, you know, internationally now with the pandemic. Um, and uh, hospitals um, like being filmed for the news and um, loved ones being interviewed um, and it is it is double-edged um, because uh, exactly for what you've described that for some people that's it, it's it's very very traumatic and it adds to the trauma but for other people perhaps might you say it might be empowering in that actually they can speak up share their experience and help others yeah and I think there I mean we you talked about earlier on about my personal experiences and how that's affected me. And I think there's this whole concept of the wounded healer, that people um, experience difficult things and they want to do something to make a difference for others. Now, I'm sure part of it is genuinely wanting to do things for others. And I think part of it is probably more selfish that you're trying to process stuff uh, in your own life. And that some people, um, find um, the, the public limelight as an opportunity to really uh, address, uh, address things that are on their hearts and minds. Um, and, and that's tremendous because there's nothing more powerful than, than that authentic experience if it's gonna motivate you, drive you forwards. But equally, one has to be conscious all the time that there, for, there are other people that that is terrifying um they don't want to to be part of it they want to somehow move on from that experience um and if for them moving on uh may be a very different thing than, than taking it on as a cause as it were um so one has to think very carefully about that certainly when we're working with a charity you obviously want good case studies to highlight what you're doing and i think one has to be very very careful about how you um use people's experience as as to 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 promote your cause um you really really have to be very sensitive about that and make sure that uh, 
whoever you're working with are happy with that and that it's a positive thing for them. You're not actually causing more harm than you're trying to, uh, to solve. Can we have a, 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 can we explore talking therapy? Because I think um, one of the things is about um, the stigma of it, um, and uh, that oh, it's all right for other people to go and have talking therapy, but oh, I'm fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. That I don't need fixing. Is is a common um, kind of uh, idea around talking therapy. Um, and and I've I've been in talking therapy, and I've um, not unfortunately not had the trauma of war or, or conflict but I've had different personal crises and different at different times of my life difficult periods and um, I've always said you know if you've got a legal problem go to a lawyer you've got a financial problem go to an accountant and um, you've got um, you know, a difficulty a, 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 that, that is emotional um, let's go and see a counsellor um, and also for some other people actually what is more appropriate or, or that fits with them is to go and see their priest um, and you talk about pastoral care and so on um would could you just share your thoughts on 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 some of some of that yeah i mean i also have um had uh, therapy in my time and i found it very beneficial and i think it's partly one of the reasons why i was open open for for it was the fact that i've uh, as a priest frequently uh, offered counsel. I'm not a qualified counsellor, I have to say that. I'm a priest. And I think one has to be very, uh, to understand the differences there. Um, but as a priest, you're often the first port of call when someone is facing uh, difficulties. Um, and people often want to talk to someone who they can talk to confidentially. Um, they can trust that what they unload onto you, you're not going to uh, to pass on to others, that you may have some wisdom around it. Um, but at the very least, what you're likely to do is to stay alongside them, um, stay alongside them prayerfully. And that's important for some people to know that you're praying for them, but also that, that you in a non-judgmental way will stand by them, uh, whatever happens. And I think that's something that a priest uh, can do. I'm often keen, when I'm working in a university context, to explain the difference to colleagues about the difference between a college chaplain and a college counsellor. Because sometimes we say, we don't need a chaplain, we need a counsellor, which is fine, but they're doing rather different things. Uh, and often it's working in tandem between the two. So I've had situations um, as a priest where someone has come to see me about what they perceive as being a religious issue. And I can tell that it's, there's more to it than that. Um, that there's sometimes there's a deep psychological thing going on there, which I am not qualified uh, to be able to deal with. I've had that on several occasions. Um, on one occasion, someone uh, I was speaking to, I realized there was something deeply, deeply wrong uh, and managed to get this, this person thought, uh, thought he was possessed. And um, I managed to, to get this person to see um, someone who was a, an exorcist. It sounds very dramatic but he was qualified to do the ministry of deliverance in the church. 
but he was also a psychiatrist. And that person very quickly spotted the signs of schizophrenia. And it turned out that the person concerned had schizophrenia, but because this person had got was very devoutly religious, it had manifested itself in some uh, very uh, strange and disturbing religious ways. And but the good thing was that person got the right treatment um, and had a priest who was willing to stand uh, alongside uh, at that crisis point. And I think that's that's really important to be able to do that. I think it's that being alongside, because it's going to be terrifying if you're feeling traumatic, if experiencing trauma, and you and you feel so alone. And this, if there's someone there that can just stand by and help you through the process, I think that's really valuable. That's where I see the sort of priestly role uh, kicking in. And also, I guess, in, in many situations, some of the pain that we're feeling, the grief, the loss, um, and the trauma, we can't endlessly or can't we 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 feel sometimes we can't burden them our fa friends and family with this um and uh also there are some things you can't you feel oh i can't i can't tell my family or, or i can't tell my friend because it's too shameful or or for whatever reason um and um, and i just pluck this as an example um and a, a, a therapist um a counselor or a priest is someone that you can go to who is completely independent your um what you tell them is completely confidential and uh and they don't judge you that's right. I think one of the most powerful things that one can do as a priest is hear someone's confession. Um, and as a child, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, and I went to confession every week, and that was a painful exercise, to be quite honest. It was quite traumatic in itself. But as a, an Anglican priest much later in life, where people don't routinely go to confession, when you do hear confessions, there's normally an exceptionally powerful reason for doing so. So I've I've heard people's confessions on a number of times where they've had things that were weighing on their mind massively and they simply could not discuss it with their uh, family or close friends for perfectly clear reasons. Um, and one feels that you're helping to lift something enormous of someone's uh, conscience when, when, when one is uh, in a confessional mode. And I think that's a deeply powerful thing. I see it all as part of this, say, talking therapy. Um, it's all part of the same, same thing, really. It's about uh, people being able to, 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 to release what's trapped within them that's causing so much um, stress, pain, anxiety, fear, anger, lots of stuff that needs to come out. And if one can help that come out, then that's very healing. Now, we've talked, um, I suppose, from your personal experience and your story, um, and you are a member of the Beyond Conflict uh, team, and you happen to be Christian, uh, but Beyond Conflict is not a Christian organisation. Could you say something about, about that? Yeah, and um, I think that, well, I suppose I do at a very personal level, I'm a very... Are very open to people of all all religions and, and none. I think we're all on a journey, and my personal journey happens to have been shaped by a firmly background circumstance uh, and so on, in a Christian uh, way. And I could 
I often think, well, if I were, had been had had I been born in Pakistan, I'd probably be a liberal Muslim. That's probably um, well, so. I I come at it um, at religion, um, perhaps in a quite a surprising way. Some people might think as a priest, but someone who feels instinctively uh, spiritual and religious, and, and that's been shaped by my personal circumstances. So I then transfer that to other people's situations and think, well, actually, you know, if I'm thinking about people in other cultures, other contexts, other societies, um, I understand how important religion can be in terms of developing one's sense of identity. We're all trying to struggle to understand you know, what's the purpose of life, um, what's my role in it all. Uh, and and I respect that. I respect other people who are, who, are, who are dealing with that in a different context. But equally, it's very, very, it has massive implications for one's mind and psychological state. Um, and therefore, taking religion as a serious aspect of what a human being is, I think is of immense importance. One of the things that worries me about um, thera therapeutic techniques for dealing with, um, with mental health is that if you try to separate um, the psychological from the spiritual, um, I think that can be really dangerous. And um, now for some people it's fine, they're not religious and um, they don't want religion in, but other for people who are religious, you've got to be able to deal with that. We live in a society in, in this country, which is highly secular. We have to remember that um, many, many societies, religion runs much, much deeper than it does over here. Um, and if you don't take that seriously, if you don't understand that, then you're not in the best position to be able to help people. And so how does that um, play out in the work that Beyond Conflict does um, in terms of its um, pre, uh, um, various projects that are, that are ongoing and its um, overall mission and vision? Well, I think in terms of the overall vision, um, there are practicing religious people involved from different faiths um, on the involved in, in, in terms of being trustees and, and key supporters and uh, ambassadors. Um, but I think what they all share is this open sense of religiosity um, and awareness that, that religion is part of the mix um, and that it needs to be taken seriously when it presents itself. You, um, you really do need to understand the person in the most holistic sense of it to be able to offer really good interventions. So I think that's important. The other important thing to say is that one doesn't uh, push relig religion at all in the process. That's not what we're about. It's much more subtle than that. It's just understanding if someone wants to talk about their relationship with God in the context of how they feel about the situation they feel, then um, that's important to uh, to be able to handle. And and if you, if you if you're not if you don't understand that, you can't really offer the, the sort of support one needs. And I think in any form of talking therapy, what is absolutely crucial is that there is a degree of 
connectivity be behind between the person uh, receiving and giving the therapy. And if you're on a completely different wavelength, then it just doesn't work. Uh, if you are on the same wavelength, then it can really be transformative. And so what I'm uh, uh, what I, I'm hearing is that actually the work of Beyond Conflict in itself, uh, the organization is not religious. Um, it's there to help people with their mental health um, in times of crisis. Um, and um, the people who are working with um, uh, the, uh, the the people on the ground, actually, it's all about accepting that person right there and then as they are right now um, and taking their their faith or non-faith um, as part of who they are. And that's the main aim to help this person. Absolutely. That's spot on. And I think that's absolutely crucial for any sort of talking therapy to be able to do that. So now let's let's get on with get on to your book um, with that wonderful title. Um, you've written a, a number of books, but the one that we're, uh, I'd love to talk about is what can one person do, um, particularly um, you know in in our current um, moment in time with the pandemic um, and the economic crises um, arising out of the situation, and in terms of all the conflict uh, zones uh, as well. Um, could you tell us more about your book? Yeah, I mean. Um... This uh, emerged partly from my, my background in economics uh, and also when I was at St Paul's Cathedral we were trying to help um, Christians um, in particular um, to engage in church groups to engage with the Millennium Development Goals both in this country and in the United States. So I co-authored the book with uh, a friend of mine who's also um, a priest, Anglican priest, uh, also an economist, and she's American. And at the time, uh, had been working, recently been working for the World Bank, um, also working with the uh, alongside the UN on 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 number of projects, and was particularly concerned that in 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 the UK, um, the church in, engagement with with social justice issues. Um, was perhaps stronger than it was in 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 the US, particularly in the Episcopal Church. So that was the sort of driving force was to produce a material that was transatlantic but would help church communities engage. Also, not just engage at a practical level, but but a deeper uh, spiritual theological level. So we tried to provide the the theological um, rationale for why. Uh, people of Christian faith should should uh, get behind these goals and what, what was the connectivity. So that was what it was about. But it's also a highly practical book about what one person could do. And we found a cartoon which sort of summed it up rather beautifully, which was a, a cartoon of, of, of planet Earth from outer space with lots of little speech bubbles coming up saying, what can one person do? What can one person do? And that's really where we got the title of the book, because it was this cacophony of individuals um, expressing the same desire and how does one help those individuals connect with others uh, and be part of a movement uh, and what can each individual do in their own personal lives to make a difference um, so that's that was the sort of background to it all and um, and it was it was a really powerful experience to to, to write that book 
one story that really got to me um, about it and it in a transformative way is that we were looking at how churches uh, could connect um, with communities in, in developing countries. And there was a wonderful story of a church, I think it was a church in New York, certainly a church in the States that was helping a, a community in Africa. And they asked the community what they wanted in terms of to, to raise money and a, and a project. And the community came back with the answer, musical instruments. And that's caused a row over in the States because the church didn't want to, they, they'd assumed they would be asking for sanitation or um, providing some educational resources, these sorts of things. When they asked for musical instruments, they thought this was uh, not on. And there was a dialogue between the two communities. And eventually the, uh, the church in the States, the community there really saw what was going on, which was that they wanted to do something to bring together people across the community, to be able to celebrate events, uh, to give, um, to incentivize young people to, to take up a new interest in music. And so they did it. And I think the, the result was very powerful. And that always struck me that, that what we think people need isn't always what they really need. And um, I think that's a, that's a lesson for beyond conflict and lesson for us all. So it really is about listening um, and hearing actually what what the person you're trying to help is saying, um, which takes us back to the first, you know, when we started this, uh, uh, this podcast, um, listening and hearing what the young woman said um, to Edna and, and, and you were part of that conversation rather than kind of right. I know what's right. I'm going to sort you out. Um, so um, that is actually quite humbling. Um, and um, so in terms of any practical tips and, and ideas for um, for our listeners in terms of well, what, what can one person do? Um, can you um, share some of the things that were in your book uh, around that? Well, I mean, that, well, some of the things I would say is the book was written, um, ooh, I don't think how many years ago, it's about 20, getting on to 20 years ago now. And the world has changed massively in that time, not least through connectivity through, through social media. Um, and I think the potential for, um, for being involved in uh, international movements in, in particular and connecting with people um, is, has, has, is, 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 is transformative. And I think this links in with, with the work of Beyond Conflict because um, using the internet to provide ways of uh, providing uh, counseling facilities, therapeutic uh, services, etc., um, is really significant. And I think also connecting people with projects going on around the world and seeing them firsthand in a way we've never been able to do that before, I think is important. So I, I would urge people to, if, if you have a particular area that you want to really connect with, do some, talk to Dr. Google and, and see, what's, see what's out there um, and find out how you could get involved. Um, I mean, thinking of another little project that I've been involved in with, um, with, with, with a friend who I met um, at Cumberland Lodge here where I, I work 
who was um, linked in with Prince's Trust International. She's she's from Iraq um, and uh, was caught up in the in, in dreadful things and wanted to connect schools uh, in the UK where she came to university and Iraq where she comes from. And I helped her with that, um, set up a small project called Let's Be Friends. And it was wonderful. My son took part in it. Um, it connected th through the internet um, a school in Iraq with a school in uh, Windsor uh, and they shared materials and, 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 and shared experiences and had this sort of intercultural uh, encounter. And I think that the word encounter, I think, is so important. And that's what I think the internet is enabling people to do, to encounter people who seem to be, you know, in my youth would have been seemed to be on another planet, let alone another country. But now they're neighbours, they're friends, they can connect, they can learn from each other. And I think that sort of connectivity uh, really makes a difference and, and brings people together. And that's what one person can do. One can trawl the internet, get involved and, and try to shrink the globe um, by, by doing good and, uh, and understanding other people. Brilliant. Um, Ed Newell, thank you so much for a fascinating, moving, empowering, inspiring uh, conversation here on the Beyond Conflict podcast. Um, if people want to find out more about you, uh, where can they go? Um, they can go two places. One is the Cumberland Lodge uh, website, and um, I'm the chief executive of Cumberland Lodge, an educational foundation, and there's a bit about me uh, there. I also have my own website, www.ednewell.info. Um, I'm hopeless at keeping it up to date, but if people are interested in what I get up to and a bit more about my writing and other things, then they will find uh, things there as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ed Newell. And now we hear from Edna Fernandez, the co-founder of Beyond Conflict, with an update on the charity's work as at March 2021. So, Edna Fernandez, what's the latest news from Beyond Conflict? Well, as you know, Yang Mei, uh, Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for victims of war, terrorism and displacement in post-conflict zones. Uh, we're a fairly, fairly new charity. We have two projects at the moment. Uh, the first one is live and it went live last year. It's in Bangladesh in the world's largest refugee camp called Cox's Bazaar, uh, which is home to about a million Rohingya refugees who were driven out of Myanmar. And the project there is we have begun offering training to the frontline workers of seven Bangladeshi NGOs operating in that camp. These are people that deliver aid face to face with the refugees. Since COVID, and also because of the nature of their work dealing with the very serious issues of the refugees, many of these aid workers are struggling with their own mental health and they need to keep going in order to help the people in the camp. So our project there is to offer these frontline workers from seven NGOs mental health support training, which is provided by our partners within Bangladesh, called an organization called GDC. Uh, the training is led by a British Bangladeshi psychiatrist who is an expert in trauma counseling. And these sessions operate in a COVID safe environment. Um, and 
Secondly, it is backed up by a telephone support hotline. Virtually any time that these trainees need support, they can call a hotline and speak to the psychiatrist leading the program, and he will be able to offer them private one-on-one -on -one support. The third aspect of our project in Bangladesh is to set up something called a referral pathway, which is aimed at refugees themselves. So at the moment, we have a camp of 1 million people. There is mental health support from psychiatrists within that camp, but how the uh, refugees themselves navigate this is uh, difficult to know. So what we are looking to do and what we have been working on is using our, the frontline workers to identify refugees in the camp who need help and then to connect them with accredited psychiatrists who are operating within the camp who can give them private counselling. And this is uh, offered by accredited organisations approved by the Bangladeshi government, which is the only type of organisation that can have face-to-face counselling with people in the camp. The second project is in Iraq, southern Iraq, the city of Najaf. And we're working with our partners, the al Khoi Foundation, who have been in Iraq for decades, and they also operate internationally. Um, and that project there is um, working with three to four charities on the ground, including the al Khoi Widows and Orphans Charity. So we have four or five of the biggest charities in Iraq who have signed up to be trained by two psychiatrists who will be sent over from London to train uh, all these uh, workers of the charity face-to-face -face and assist them in how to provide mental health support to the widows and orphans who are living in their own charitable institutions. So this project, unfortunately, has been placed on pause because of COVID, but it's ready to go. We have the money set up and ready to be spent and the partners are on standby. So as soon as it's safe to go, we will send that team out there. Um, at the end of the day, we are looking to uh, observe all the rules on the pandemic, keep everyone as safe as possible, but also still deliver on our mission to deliver mental health to the people in need in these uh, war-torn areas and post-conflict zones. Edna Fernandez, co-founder of Beyond Conflict. Thank you for this update. And we'll hear from you again uh, in the next podcast with uh, the update at that point. So thank you very much. Our guest was Ed Newell, author, speaker, Anglican priest, and chair of the Board of Trustees of Beyond Conflict. For photos and links to some of the things we talked about, as well as music credits, go to our show notes page at beyond-conflict.co.uk and click through to podcast. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for conflict zones. We offer free mental health support to frontline workers and civilians affected by war, terrorism and displacement. To find out more about Beyond Conflict and how you can help, go to beyond-conflict.co.uk. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at Beyond Conflict 1, and that's the numeral 1, at Beyond Conflict 1. On Instagram, we are at Beyond Conflict Charity. And you can email us. The podcast email address is podcast at beyond-conflict.co.uk. 
from me, Yang Mei Ui. Thanks for listening and keep well till next time.